Hello and welcome to Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about the favourite today. The yes. New Yorgos Lanthimos film. Um, we previously talked about uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer on the podcast. Ah. Which is by him. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this, one, uh, this one was not written by him. This was written by Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. Um, his other films, I think, have been written or co-written by him. Mm. Um, of, of his others, I've seen... Killing of a Sacred Deer, and um, The Lobster. The Lobster. Mm. I haven't seen Dogtooth. No, I haven't. It's the one that, that made him a name. Yeah. Um, I love the other two, and first thing I'd say about this one is it's an awful lot more accessible than the two I've seen. Um, it's more active. It's, it's char- more fun. It's more fun. Characters are easier to relate to, and they talk an awful lot more. There's less time given to the audience to kind of ponder people's states of mind, mm. and that sort of thing, because things are kind of more constantly happening, which is... It's a it's pleasantry, you know. It's not it's more accessible and it's fun to watch. It's full of great jokes. Uh, yeah, it's incredibly funny. So, the uh, the favorite is based on uh, very lightly true events. It's the, it's the enormously kind of speculative and just uses its historical basis as a, a jumping off point to, to do what it wants. Really, yeah. Um, it's about Queen Anne's uh, court in the early seventeen hundreds, and there's uh, jockeying for power as her favorite i.e. her kind of intimate companion, mm. that, the same that monarchs would have. Um, so on the one hand, you've got... Let me just make sure the character names. Um, Lady Marlborough. Yeah, so uh, Sarah Churchill, Lady Marlborough, played by Rachel Weisz, mm. who is Queen Anne's existing uh, favourite, and her cousin, um, who's kind of been quite downtrodden, uh, makes her way to the palace and inveigles her way in into a kind of competition mm. with Lady Marlborough. The cousin is uh, Abigail Hill, played by Emma Stone. Mm. And the Queen is played by Olivia Colman. Yes. Wonderfully. Yes. It's fantastic cast. They're all fantastic. They are. I would I would be hard placed to see to, to argue as to who was better and I would include Nicholas Holt, who's also fantastic. Who plays Robert Harley. Yes. Uh, who is kind of represents uh, landed gentry that's being taxed in, uh, and they feel overtaxed yes. in the war with France uh, to pay for it. Having read biographies of all of the main characters in the film, it is based on those characters. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, the incidents are, you know... Uh, uh, imagined. Imagined. I mean, there was a war with France, obviously, and Marlborough was in- involved and so on, but... You know, this kind of really focuses on the psychology of, like, these historical personages. Uh, and kind of, you know, in, in large part, it's faithful to them. I mean, you know, kind of uh, Queen Anne was needy and indecisive and sentimental and yeah. depressed and, you know, and Eccentric. so on. Uh, um, I mean, the thing that's probably not accurate is, you know, whether they had a lesbian relationship or not. Though, it is true to say that sentiment and feeling you know, about these two women were a driving force in the politics of the time. Yeah, and that's one of the things that comes with being a favourite. Yes. That's, that's the reason that that's the reason a favourite is a favourite and not just a lady-in-waiting or a vizier yeah. or something like that. There is a more intimate relationship. and but, but part of it is that because this all goes on behind closed doors and very high uh, kind of levels, you will never know the truth. Yes, um, well, there's two elements to that, right? One is 
a feeling, yeah, which might also be sex, but, you know, it might not. Mm. Uh, and that the feeling then results in the political power necessary to influence affairs of state. That's what makes a favorite, mm. right? And so um, that kind of sets the ground for uh, what we see. And what's interesting about this, of course, is that it's a rare instance in English history <laughs> where all of these intrigues, where women are at the center of all of these intrigues, mm. right? So it has a queen, right? And she was only the third, I think. It's Elizabeth and Mary, and then Anne. There might have been a few There was, there was Matilda, right. I think, who, who ruled was with... Was she Queen of England, or was she just Queen of Mercia or something? I think she, I think she ruled with King Stephen. I don't remember exactly, but she she wasn't a queen on, on of her own right. right, not entirely herself. But yeah, the point is, we haven't had many queens compared to kings. Exactly. <laughs> there are very few. Uh, and certainly even when there have been queens, the favourites have been male, mm. right? Uh, as with Elizabeth, right? Or as indeed with Victoria. Uh, or as indeed with Mary, right? So this is a rare instance in which kind of yeah. the favourites are women. Uh, and so that makes it kind of really intriguing and interesting uh, and particularly in a culture which is this, you know, this film makes clear in a very humorous kind of throwaway way, which is nonetheless kind of a little bit black and bitter, right? Kind of uh, women are really downtrodden. So, you know, uh, the, the character that Emma Stone plays is basically sold by her father, you know, to some fat German with a thin cock, as the film tells us, you know, in order to settle his debts, right? Yeah. So kind of... Um, yeah, her character in particular, they have different relationships to sex, and Emma Stone's character in particular um, is the kind of... She is the most divorced from sex, I think, as anything romantic. Hmm. She's been raped repeatedly, she makes mention at one point, and it's clear through the way that she she behaves during sex and treats it that it's, uh, it's something that is commodified, hmm. and it's used as a tool. It's used to kind of... Like, when she has the fight with the guy who's who's trying to... Um, cop off with her mm. in the in the forest, you know. She kind of she she lets him come onto her mm. in a way that's actually it's quite a movieish sort of thing. She says like, "Kiss me properly first you know. In a kind of you think, "Oh, this is going to be the moment," and then she kicks him in the nuts. Yeah, you know. So like, she uses it to bring him on, then kick him off, and at no point is it to her anything more than you know a, a tool. Yes, um, of of some description or other. Um. And on the other end, you've got Queen Anne, who really is needy, and you feel kind of psychologically damaged, and she doesn't think much of herself. You know, right at the start, um, you've got Rachel Vice telling her you look like a badger with that makeup on, and she, the the way that Rachel Vice talks to her all the time, is is to is to kind of tread her down, is to um, Kind of, kind of keep her in in a place in a way. Like she, she you can't go over the fact that she is the queen. Yes. She's the most powerful person in the country. But if you're kind of constantly needling at her, it, it has a psychological effect on her. She yes. doesn't feel that she's pretty. She doesn't feel you know that that she's desirable or anything like that. Or sexually kind of um, or smart or smart or anything. <laughs> but, really. but but in kind of sexual terms, it means that she really relies on Rachel Vice. Yes, and well, on emotional terms. Yeah, I think. Not yeah, just... sure. That was that as well, but I'm, I, but what I mean is to say that like she's just on the very other end. Like she, to her, sex is connected to emotion, mm. and so the, you these things kind of clash. Mm. You know, Rachel Vice is more uh, on Emma Stone's end, mm. treating it as a tool um, and as something useful. Yes, and it's it's the way that they, or one of the ways in which they are able to 
win the Queen's favour. Yeah. And kind of manipulate her. Yes. Which is quite cruel to the Queen. I mean, I felt there are some ways in which the Queen is not sympathetic, but for a lot of the time she is, and certainly in that respect she is. She's yes. nothing but a victim emotionally. Yes. I mean, you know, in a way, I think the triumph of this film for me is, well, first, it is, it is really, I found it hilariously funny. Hmm. And yet I also found it very moving. You know, there were moments where I, it just moved me. And actually, those were all Olivia Cole moments, really. Coleman. Coleman. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I was also profoundly moved. And I think I was profoundly moved by substance. You know, that kind of, you know, these characters are very complex because you can understand all of them, right? So, uh, you know, Emma Stone, what she wants is to create a situation where she's safe. Right, she's had so much go on in her life that what she really wants is security, and kind of almost all her actions mm. are kind of done in order to achieve it. And you can understand, you know. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, I admire that she's so smart that she can, yeah, and daring, <laughs> actually, because she takes quite a lot of chances. Uh, you know, yeah, and and with great danger. I mean, we see her, kind of, you know, being beaten uh, um, for having walked in on the queen. She 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 lies her way into the queen's quarters, um, knowing that she can help out her her bruised and yeah. sore legs with this ointment that she's created. And then she when she she sort of discovered, yes. and beaten. But it's the risk that she's taken mm. that then means that she wins the favor of the queen because the queen goes, "Oh, thank you very much." It yes. worked. And we also understand Sarah Churchill because you know she's really smart. I mean, had she not been a woman, she would have been, you know, the head minister. Uh, and often we see her in men's clothes, yeah, kind of shooting and riding and, mm. and so on. Uh, and really kind of, you get the feeling that what she wants is to be right, right? That, you know, she's got, she's got the mind of a brilliant person and can't quite exercise it except, you know, through the queen, right? Mm. Um, so you, you also understand her, or I understand her character. And also you really get the feeling that she's also you know, very considerably in love with her husband, right? And that is mm. a kind of a different relationship than what we see with Emma Stone or what we see with the Queen. Um, so I feel you you understand her. And she's also kind of very nonsensical, uh, very driven, and also cruel, because one of the things that sets the relationships at the very beginning between the two women, between... Sarah Churchill and what's Emma Stone's character? Abigail. Ab yeah, Abigail. Is that um, Sarah treats Abigail very badly because, you know, in those days, if a cousin shows up, you know, then actually your job is to protect her and make her feel at home instead of sending her as a scullery maid to the kitchen. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, you know, to be a cousin is to be family, right? And so uh, uh, Abigail is really ditched by her. Yeah. So um, there are all these dynamics that the film puts into play, uh, you know, that, that have texture uh, and, and certainly are beautifully dramatized and kind of are very beautifully rendered comic as well. Yeah. So, mm. so there's all these things happening in the film at the same time, which I think is really kind of quite astonishing. Yeah, the film's got a really incredible sense of humour. It's sensible. I can't. I mean, I can't exactly figure out exactly how to place it. Like it's, it's, it's not surreal exactly. There are no real kind of flights of fancy, but there are incongruities. Remember when we were talking about the Phantom Thread yeah. and how funny it was when uh, he he he's lying ill in bed and he tells the doctor to fuck off. Yes. And then um, 
uh, Alma pops her head into frame and says, well, I think it's clear he wants you to fuck off. And it just doesn't fit mm. the time, you know? Mm. But, and it's done with this, with this kind of lightness of touch that's, that's very funny. There's a lot of that in this. There's a lot of bad language. The word yes. cunt comes out six or seven times. Yes. And, um, yeah, yes, you if, you expect, freely. if you expect a normal, sweet, safe, <laughs> you know, historical drama... This is not it. <laughs> no, no, exactly. But it's also not done. It's not done in a kind of. It's not vulgar. It's just the occasional, the occasional vulgarity, the occasional swear word does crop up, and, and, how to put it like, and shocks a bit and startles. Yeah, and know, has I a mean, comic effect for being surprises. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, I think I think I I was also thinking that throughout this film because you know my first thought when thinking about Jorgis Lantimos films is surreal, right? And certainly I, th- I thought the lobster had those elements. Oh, yeah. But this one does not. The, the humour comes from the unexpected, really, and also from questions of tone. Yeah, the kind of, you know, uh, um, the humour is really quite black, and it, it kind of, it could be perceived as harsh, except it's not, right? So, for example, you know, there's a scene where Sarah Churchill has been beaten up, right, and she wakes up and talks to this woman, and you realize that, you know, she's in a whorehouse. She's been locked up in a whorehouse, right? And that kind of there's someone fucking someone else of indeterminate gender just by the window. And actually, just the incongruity of that yeah. is just funny, right? Like, kind of, you know, that's not what you'd expect, yeah? Yeah. To, and actually, even if you expect to see her wake up in bed with a scar, you, would, you wouldn't expect you know, yeah. the camera to reveal just casual sex happening on the side of it. Yeah, the incongruities of it are just really well judged and really well timed and also kind of revealing, yeah? So it's humor that comes out of, out of context. It's not just, yeah. you know, a banana and slipping on a banana. Yeah. Well, in, in the setting, there's a kind of combination of the realistic and the comic. So if you compare it to something like uh, The Lobster, which is set in a very different kind of sci-fi world, mm. this isn't that at all. The, the the kind of the set design is fabulous. It's so yes. rich, and these places, you know, these kind of, these kind of these rooms, um, uh, they all look like they would in any other mm. period drama. Mm. Um, but it's what's happening within them, just the way things are set up, that is a little bit different, or a little bit, or, or the way that people react to each other when they're in there. I mean, even uh, the, the thing about it in the whorehouse, the, the people fucking in the corner, is probably not too unrealistic, but it's just sort of. Because it's there presented for you, like it's that's the incongruity. The, the way that, um, uh, for instance, you have qu- the queen's rabbits in her room. Yes. She's got these seventeen rabbits, and they let them out early on, and they're kind of hopping around the place. And again, like it, on a kind of logical level, it's perfectly reasonable you would let your pets out and have them running around. But then the effect that it has on the scenes when kind of more serious stuff is happening and there's kind of political intrigue and these power games mm. and there's a rabbit hopping around in the background chasing another one. Yes. It, 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 it's the, you know, the, that juxtaposition has a comic effect. It's rather like in, um, in Bad Lieutenant, the, um, the Werner Herzog version, mm. where, you know, it's this story of, of this, this drug addict cop, um, but he was, he's forced to uh, cart a Labrador around with him the whole time. This is the happiest dog in the world. And it just sets off all the scenes in a really weird way. <laughs> yes. I think um, this humour is also quite harsh. So, for example, the scene that comes to mind is when Harley 
uh, is talking to Abigail and he's trying to convince her to work for him and spy for him. And she doesn't. And at a certain point, he just pushes her into a ditch, right? Mm. And again, it's so startling and, and dark, right? And kind of brutish and yet funny, right? Yeah. Um, and also, and I think part of the darkness of the film is, or part of, you know, the harsh acts that the film shows, but which actually don't tilt over into darkness. Like the film always remains in a, you know, in, in a realist light vein. Yeah, it's mm. kind of, uh, I think part of the reason for that is just a matter of fact that all of the characters think this is what life is like. Like life is harsh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they, they treat it very matter of fact, actually. Uh, uh, but fight it, yeah, mm. or kind of respond to it. And I thought that push kind of was a, an emblem of that. For mm. me, the comparison is with, uh, what's his name, Delaclos, um, what's the name? The Dangerous Liaisons, you know? Uh, oh, um... Um, yeah, the Stephen Frears film, but also Valmont, the Milos Forman film. I think there was also Cruel Intentions was a teen remake of it, yeah? Mm. You know, these people who kind of use sex, you know, as a game, yeah? yeah? Except in this, it's not a game. It's actually, like, you know, essential to the achievement of those goals for which one of the people is absolute survival, yeah? Pierre Chaudelot de Laclos. That's right. Yeah. Um, Yes, Google's much better than my memory. <laughs> An 18th century novelist. Uh, uh, but yeah. but it, was ma- it was remade into like several f- mm. famous films, two big hits. Yeah. And this has that same kind of sexual machination to achieve what you want. Yeah. And, you know, and sex is a game and an element of self-confidence. So the Rachel Weisz com- uh, character is very self-confident. She can get the queen, you know, she can get the queen to do what she wants on the basis of the queen's affection for her. Mm. Right, and that's kind of what Abigail aims to replace her with, but she never quite achieves the extent of what the Rachel Vice character had. Um, and you know, kind of, I think the queen just wants affection. I think it's very interesting because you see all the characters, particularly the Abigail character, suffer such terrible things, and you know, what turns the queen around is her being cruel to a rabbit. Yeah, well, um, the Queen is linked to the rabbits very early on. So there, there's cinematography, which I think we, sh- we should come back to. We should to, come back to, yes. That, that uses very wide-angle shots and at seven or eight points, fisheye lenses. And um, in the Queen's chambers, I found it, it, it has this effect of um, making her feel like an animal in a cage. Mm. She's very often left alone there in this enormously ornate huge room, but she has nothing to do. She can't move a lot of the time, so her leg hurts. When she does walk around, she has this very awkward limping gait to her. Um, So she's she's kind of a prisoner in this room. And all her rabbits at the start are in cages. Cages. She's also- she's always gazing out of windows, yeah? Yeah. You know, like as in a prison, really. Yeah, absolutely. She's also linked to the rabbits when she explains that each one essentially represents um, a child that she, she lost, she lost, whether it was stillborn or died in infancy, she lost seventeen children, um, and she has these seventeen rabbits. She, and th- you know that's that, that's explained in dialogue, um, so it's very clearly linked. And so you do get this, and, and that's when that's also when Emma Stone um, and she connect for the first time. 
Yes. It's when Emma Stone is sent to the Queen's Chambers to play whist with her because uh, Rachel Weisz has more important things to be doing. She's getting on with running the country. Yes. Um, because that's the job she's given herself. Mm. Um, and the Queen doesn't want her there. And it's when Emma Stone takes an interest in the rabbits and gets them out and shows love for them. Those two connect. Mm. So uh, the Queen is very much connected to these things. And it's right at the end of the film, the Queen's lying in bed uh, and... Emma Stone's just reading the book and she puts her heel. She starts standing and applying pressure to one of the rabbits. That's and cruel. It's incredibly cruel. The rabbit starts whimpering. And, okay, so uh, Queen Anne can hear it. She responds to the whimpering. But there is a sense of a kind of... To me, it felt like a telepathic connection. Nice. Like, 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 you know, kind of magical sort of twins. It's like, my twin gets hurt and I feel it too. Sort of thing. It, felt like, it felt like a telepathic connection where it's like when the, when the rabbit is in pain, mm. it has a physical effect on the queen. For me, what, what that mo- well, that moment is characteristic of many things. But what I want to underline here is the way that the film distributes knowledges. Or, you know, so that's a moment where we know that the queen saw, yeah, what uh, Abigail was doing. Mm. It's also a moment of transformation with Abigail, because actually we've never seen Abigail be just senselessly cruel until that moment so actually this process of her getting safe has also made her cruel Mm. right it is a moment of transformation but also we know that the queen saw but emma doesn't know and actually will not know that yeah that's what the queen saw right and the film trades on this these disparities of of knowledge of who knows what when right kind of to make the drama kind of move along it's really really very well done i think and there's also, I think, a hierarchical thing going on there um, in terms of kind of um, uh, exercising your status or trying to exercise it and trying to gain it by exercising it. Mm. Um, and, yeah, and if you get away with it, you've proved that you are mm. worthy of a certain status in a way. And, um, and it's done visually through, through people or things being above and below each other. Right from the very beginning of the film, although it does tail off, there's a visual design of... Uh, shots being held from very very low and pointing mm. up like in- incredibly uh, sort of strikingly and, and expressively and it's it's exaggerated mm. you know these shots are you see at people's nostrils practically mm. the, the shots are so far below it's really emphasised these kind of the, the kind of the power like the, it's, it's like fucking Stonehenge these people standing over you looking at each other that was incredibly original visually and, and so what happens right at the end, it has tailed off by this point, that particular thing, but the, the idea of being above and below, I think, mm. continues. So you've got the rabbit underneath uh, Emma Stone's foot being yes. crushed, and the Queen notices, and to punish her, she stands up and tells Emma Stone uh, to rub her legs, which is mm. you know, something she's been doing throughout the film to, to help her. And so it's Emma Stone who ends up on her knees, yes. looking up at the Queen. Yeah. Well, not even looking up, the camera looks up, but Emma Stone's just looking forward, hating where she's, you know, because the Queen has asserted her power. Yes. And then the, and it fades over with these images of the rabbits and the film ends. Yes. You know, I didn't quite know what to make of that at first, but I've kind of... Yes, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what to make of that as well. But though, you know, I think it's a great ending. Yeah, and actually, not... not so there are some things that come across very clearly, mm. right? You know, the Queen regaining her power... Yeah, kind of uh, uh, Emma Stone being crushed. You know, the image of these rabid children kind of overtaking kind of the image. Also, that this is a moment where she might be dying, right? Like, mm. you know, um, so 
kind of some things come across very clearly. When you try to pin this image means X, actually that's not so clear. Yeah, but some things are clear, right? So this this yeah. um, reversal of power is absolutely clear, right? So and I think that, reassertion, I would put it as. I think the queen never kind of lost her power, but she. Well, not not in relation to Abigail, you know, but I think very much in relation to Rachel Weiss, mm. you know. So, so, you know, and that's what happens. One of the things I want to mention is that the film also trades very much on, you know, an English tradition of not saying what you mean or of pointedly saying one thing but really meaning another. And actually, I think what this film does that's so interesting is it uses that mode of communicating of communicating, and then it translates it for you, <laughs> right? Okay. So, yeah, you remember the exchanges. Uh, Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz are continuously having these exchanges, mm. right, where something is highly coded, mm. and then the other one will say, so, you know, this means that, you know, you're going to screw <laughs> right, me if I do this. <laughs> there are a couple of points where someone will just explain that the, the point where um, Rachel Weisz says, I'm going to use these letters if I don't get my way, yes. could not be clearer. That could yeah. not be clearer. Um, and there are one or two other points, but the, the points where it is left as uh, coded threats, mm. you know, are very nice. I, I'm thinking particularly of the one where the two of them are shooting, Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz's are out shooting. And Which is a continuous uh, yeah. um, image. So it's, it's a scene that we continuously uh, return to. Yeah. Right? And actually part of the process of the film is that, you know, towards the end, Abigail has has become as good a shot yeah. as uh, uh, Sarah, who taught her to shoot. So actually, you know, how they're shooting is also part of the way that this, the film is communicating where they're at in relation to each other. Yeah. And the one, the shooting scene I'm pretty thinking about in terms of kind of coded language is the one in which uh, Abigail, uh, in code, reveals to... Um, Lady Marlborough, that she knows she and the Queen are having a sexual relationship. Yes. Um, it's not that coded. I and mean, she she said she she refers to it as her biggest secret. Your secret to save me, including your biggest secret. Yes. And that's what she makes it clear. And then there's this thing of fire. Lady Marlborough fires the gun at her, and then says, "Oh, well, there, there was no pellet in here this time, but you've got to be careful because maybe there could be in future." Yes. And it's not. I don't, it's there's an element in which that's kind of particularly English yeah. the idea of being coded, but that's also. That's threat stuff that you've seen before in a lot of places. It's very entertaining. Yes. Um, um, that's not quite what I was referring to. I was referring okay. more to things like, you know, the conversations in the hallway where one character says to another something like, you know, I would be kind of very grateful, you know, blah, blah. And also you want me to spy on you, right? So, right. yeah, the, the kind of dialogue makes these constant translations where something is kind of, you know, okay. uh, coded so as to disavow it. And then the character makes it clear. You know, the uh, the person speaking makes it makes it clear. Okay. Which I, thought I, I was kind maybe of, didn't notice that as much as yeah. you did. Uh, uh, I found yeah. that kind of very 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 interesting because you know, well, I was just wondering because it, it's such an English way of speaking of you know of either misdirection or exaggeration or not quite saying what you mean mm. or saying something else that the words themselves don't indicate, and then it might be like you know a foreigner's kind of attitude to actually immediately you know want the translation of those things there is there is that thing that goes well on it's certainly a comic thing. idea i mean because I, I didn't notice this clearly as much as you did so i'm saying it more as a something speculative rather than as something i noticed but the idea of having characters speaking in a coded way and then 
immediately explain exactly what they're saying literally is that's a comic idea you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So like we're speaking one way for a reason but we're yeah. just going to ignore it straight away yeah. you know no, so I think that's true yeah um it's certainly very funny um i want to talk about the images you know because i think i think this is such an original film uh visually because you know it's it's kind of a mainstream film it's you know it's a, certainly it's kind of even even the budget by british standards is a mainstream budget um so, you know, to make a film that is almost entirely in wide angles, extreme wide angles. $15 million, the budget, one yeah. five. Yeah, so, you know. Yeah. Um, so, extreme wide angles or fish-eyed lenses is really quite extraordinary because mm. it is kind of jar- very jarring and distortive initially to kind of um, see, you know, a film that almost is almost entirely skewed. Right, uh, um, and the, sometimes slightly out of focus. In fact, the film is uh, shot by the cinematographer is Robbie Ryan. Yes, um, who's an Irish cinematographer who's worked a lot with Andrea Arnold. Right. So he did Red Road, uh, Fish Tank, Wuthering Heights, um, American Honey. Okay. Uh, he also did Philomena. He did I Daniel Blake. So nothing like this before. I, I think I think maybe the likes of the Andrea Arnold stuff might be a little bit. I mean, also she she shoots particularly in full frame. Well, the Andrea is, Arnold is certainly um, you know much more experimental than the Stephen Frears. But you know yeah. I, what I remember from Wuthering Heights and so on is a kind of almost like a no extreme realism. Really, yeah, yeah. You know, so so this is different. At least, oh yeah, I mean, this is of this all is the films that I've seen of an extreme. Yeah, and and, and these are extraordinarily extreme wide angles or fish-eyed lenses. That's the style of the film. If you want to take an archetypal image from this film, it would be one of those. And yet, it's used selectively. So actually, you know, the the film is very interesting as to when it's showing those extraordinarily wide angles, or when it becomes kind of normal frame and almost eye level. Right, so often you'll see uh, Emma Thompson, uh, um, Emma Thompson, Emma, Emma Stone, when she's you know when she's alone, she'll be shot kind of almost normally, right? When she's in kind of some kind of emotional distress or situation, yeah, she'll be walking through a corridor and kind of the whole thing will be skewed. Mm. There are extraordinary images at the end of Rachel Weisz using the lover's corridor that connects her uh, to the queen's bedchamber and being rejected. You know, and when she comes out, it's it's almost like the the wide eyed the the wide angle lens make her face makes her face almost like the center of a rectangle. Yeah, so everything around her is skewed. You know, but her face and the light and dark actually, but her face and the light kind of you know remains at that center of which everything mm. kind of becomes extreme. And I thought that was amazing. Those are like very vivid and memorable and expressive shots. Yeah, and I like the way that the the, the shots uh, emphasise depth as well. I think there's a feeling that you get, although I don't think it's necessarily um, normal, actually, but there's certainly a feeling that you get when you imagine the way that period films look, that you imagine them being kind of very long lenses, mm. very flat images, kind of painterly, like trying to look like oil painting. Mm. Sort of. um, you know, and actually I haven't got enough of a... A real sense of actually what they're like if, to say that that's genuinely true but I think it's something you expect in this it's not what you get at all mm. and the film I think plays for that it, the film really emphasizes depth mm. it puts people in the foreground it makes people feel very physical and I think the film also has uh, an enormous emphasis on touch and physicality and 
you you kind of you notice people touching each other, kisses and touches and kind of rubbing legs. These are all very important. The dancing, the way that people move as well. I mean, the way that Olivia Coleman walks. You know, with, with this, like I said, this very awkward gait, this kind of limpy, kind of grasping onto walls to keep her balance at some points. Impossible to ignore the way that people move mm. in this. And um, it, when you think of those kind of uh, classic uh, period drama sort of dance sequences where people will be in kind of great halls dance with each other and they're all they're all kind of very well orchestrated and everyone knows the, the steps and that sort of thing. Um, there's a kind of similar emphasis on movement and noticing how people, you know, there's space between them, then they move together, then then they move apart. Not I'm not talking about dancing, I'm talking about everything. Yes. You know, like you, you will notice the way that the way that people kind of move apart and come together in just in argument scenes. There are two like brilliant comic moments of dancing. You know, which is actually where that traditional dancing that you expect in a kind of, you know, um, uh, an 18th or 17th, 18th century period piece all of a sudden becomes kind of rap floor dancing. Right? Like, yeah. uh, the, yeah. music, the music <laughs> remains sort of sort of court music from the time, but yeah. but the dancing, all of a sudden he picks her up and starts swinging around. Yeah, and also he goes on the floor and does, that's right. you know, gymnastics. But his face remains dispassionate yeah. in that way. And But it gets her so annoyed, she puts a stop to it, right? So the whole thing is like, actually, I, that was where you get, you know, one joke on top of another joke on top of another joke. Has well, I think the reason that she got annoyed in that scene, the Queen, is because... She's she's realised. I think the dance scene is making her realise that this is the first time she realised that Rachel Vice is really trying to take control of what yes. she's doing. Because Rachel Vice behind her back is saying we're going to put up all these taxes on the landowners. Yes. And then Nicholas Holt has said to her, said to the Queen, now that he's finally got a chance to speak. Yeah, to but her, that moment. Yeah, you know, I I disagree with these with these taxes. And so then going off and watching this dance, she's like, this power's been taken away from me. But it's not just that; it's a moment of sexual jealousy. You know, she's dancing with this guy and they're getting off on the dancing and she's jealous. So there's all of that. Plus I, mean, I the didn't jealousy. see that. I mean, I oh, yes, yes. I didn't see them getting off. No, no. But, you know, but they're getting off on the dancing with each other. Yes, they are. Mm. You know, they're kind of responding to each of the movements. You know, they're having fun, kind of making odd movements. They're dancing with each other. Mm. And it makes the queen jealous. And actually, that's the moment where she says, no, you know, there will be no rise, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, okay. uh, but it's driven by jealousy uh, in that moment. Anyway. There's, there's certainly, I would, I'd certainly see there's a level of jealousy in them being able to move freely as they do. Because the queen is so unable to. She's so physically impaired. Yes. She, she, she's confined to this wheelchair. Yes. Yeah. But, it, but, it, yeah. but I think it's more than that. Anyway, my point was... You know, that the film does go off on flights. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, so kind of tonally, it's kind of, you know, there's a consistency to it. But then, so when we said earlier that, you know, this film wasn't surrealist like The Lobster. And yet it has these moments where it goes someplace completely unexpected that could risk rupturing, you know, the world of the film. Yeah. The film maintains a tone that is light and... Um, kooky enough, mm. you know, quirky, if you like, that um, it means that it doesn't risk breaking itself when it does want to do yeah. these things, you know, because because still the way that people are behaving with each other and the and just the manner in which um, sort of sex is is, I, I guess you you kind of imagine these 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 courts and these palaces as fairly dry. You know, the places of business almost. Mm. Uh, that's that's just what you would sort of imagine them as. And of course, 
in this film, sex is on the table all the time. People are always talking about people always wanting to do it. You kind of assume that everyone's trying to fuck someone yes. in this. And so that immediately kind of changes the tenor of the entire thing. Yes. Like the fact that, that, that sex and it's something kind of so something that you just don't talk about, something that you don't really associate with anything. Yes. It's so kind of constantly in the air. Yes. And there's not a sexy moment in the film. Actually, I think it's worth underlining. So it's it's a film that's constantly, that's obsessed with sex. You know, and it's obsessed with sex in almost every guise except just pure pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is something that's, that's, that's done, as we say, as a tool. Something that's used. It's not, that there's not, there's not a titillating moments in the film. No, then there's a lot of comic moments like, you know, uh, Abigail's wedding night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, forceful, determined, funny, everything but sexy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the whole thing with her husband. Like, he's kind of constantly coming on to her and she's constantly putting him off. And so when it comes to the wedding night, but he basically says, like, would you fucking please come and whack me off? And so she does, but she's obsessed with what's going on with the Queen, yes. with Rachel Vice, so she's plotting. She, she's not looking at it. She, she, in fact, he's behind her when she's doing it. She's basically not there at all. It's purely mechanical. Yeah, and and it's great. He in the background, out of focus, trying to get off. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good. Um, the, I, I one thing I liked as well is uh, the idea that you get these servants who are just sort of stood around the place. You know, these various kind of handmaidens and guards mm. and what have you, and. Um, there is an idea of sort of living in open secrecy. Like, no one should know about Rachel Weisz and the Queen. No one should know about Emma Stone and the Queen. Yes. But they have to, right? There are people stood around all the time. Yes. These things can't be complete secrets. And yet, um, like, they can get on with what they're doing, kind of knowing that uh, these people will just keep their secrets. It's weird. Like, the people, the servants around them kind of exist but don't. Well... But it happens on every level. And actually, I thought that was one of the interesting things about the film, you know, that everything happens on every level. So, for example, the opening scenes in the servants' quarters, you see the servants being as competitive and nasty and, you know, mm. plotting and, you know, kind of somebody, you know, changes her bucket so that she puts her hands in pure lie mm. and almost destroys them, right? So, you know, this idea of this Manichaean world is kind of cuts through the classes. It's not a place where just because you're poor, you're sweet. Huh. No, 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 no. Interesting movie. Fun movie. Yes. And, and I, I would full like... of fantastic performances. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's great. People can't pick their favourite out of Olivia Colman and Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone. You, you'll get, you know, the conversation sort of on Twitter and whatnot is... Um, incredibly laudatory about all three of them. Yeah. But you get people going, Olivia Colman was the best. Oh no, Rachel Weisz was the best. Like, yes. people have picked what they like. I, I, for me, I like uh, Olivia Colman the most. I, think I she's like really Olivia. sympathetic and really subtle. And also, when she, when the Queen is kind of starting to really degenerate later in the film and she's, half her face seems to have been paralysed. Yes. It's beautifully performed. Uh, Olivia Colman is amazing. And, you know, and part of the reason why I think she is, to me, the central performance in the film is because she's moving with it, you know? So, kind of, you know, she makes you understand this person and feel for her and feel for her situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, a, it's, you know, it's someone who's both comic and regal, and also you understand her loneliness and her sadness and her suicidalness, and kind of you get a sense of what a harsh, you know, life she's, she's led and how um, inadequate to the job she is. 
and actually you have all of these things and you still feel for her. She makes you feel for her. Uh, so, which I think is quite something. Interestingly, um, she, she is certainly the heart of the film and she's the most, she's probably the only character you can really feel compassion for. Yes. Um, you were saying, um, I think, I think about Aquaman, you were talking about how kind of obsessed we seem to be these days with stories about royals and kind of bloodlines and that. Um, do you think this kind of functions as a counterpoint or one I of do. Them? I do, actually. Despite um, the fact that the Queen in this is the heart of the film. Well, you see, I think it's a very interesting film because you could imagine how in England, in Britain, actually, you know, how there might be um, people who might make a films, films that are completely obsequious to royalty. And you could also imagine films that really poke fun at it and kind of deride it, yeah. right? Um, but actually, this is a film which, in a way, has no time for monarchy, right? It kind of, you know, it is all about kind of power relations and so on. But actually, where you, the person who you're most sympathetic to, who you're, you're made to be most sympathetic to, is actually the queen, mm. right? And kind of, and part of the reason why you're made to, to see her as the most sympathetic character is because, you know, she's an ordinary person with problems and feelings, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, and she's not on the make, and she is kind, and she is good. You know, she's not very intelligent, and so on, you know. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't have a right to, you know, be loved or yeah. Yeah, be understood. Um, so so it's kind of like an interesting paradox, really. Yeah, because <laughs> actually she does have all the power. She's, she's the queen. It's her God-given right. Yes. Uh, um, she well, she's uh, anointed by God, but um, and and you feel bad because the way her power's kind of been taken away from her. But I suppose it's not, it's not that she's having power taken away from it. It's the fact that she's being used so transparently. That's where you feel for her. That is where you feel for her. It's a subtle, but also you feel her need for you feel her sadness over her children. You feel her love for her rabbits. They are why shouldn't they be important? Mm. Right, you do understand why she's kind of driven almost to suicide. Mm. You you also feel that no one loves her. No one is yeah. putting her first, you know. Except they all want something from her. So of course she is first in some ways, but no one is putting her first empathetically as a human being, right? Um, so so yeah. the film makes you understand all of that. It's very very different than films like The Queen or The Madness of King George or, mm. you know, all of those films, which are really arch in some ways, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's certainly... It's, it's interesting because uh, I think a word that is very easy to use about the favourite is irreverent. Yes. It has no reverence for anything. But at the same time, um, as you say, like, the, the Queen Anne is the character who I think you can most easily respect. Yes. in it or kind of find something to like in um, I want to which is interesting yes so I want to just and this is just a game right but you know I think what what Olivia Coleman brings is uh, she makes you sympathize and feel I think at the other extreme and I think almost as great is Nicholas Holt you know because he's purely a comic figure Right, but he's a he's a comic figure. He's not the butt of the joke, right? He's just a comic figure. So he's got lots of power, and mm -hmm. he's really intelligent, and he can maneuver and so on. And he's got kind of yeah. like this harshness, right? And also this foppishness. It's a, it's a real wild performance. I think he's great, mm -hmm. right? 
So, but he's in many ways completely superficial. Yeah, he's all about power. And then kind of the two women at the center, which are Abigail and Sarah, and again, two really great performances from Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone. Um, but they're also more traditional performances, I think, actually. Mm. You know, I think what Nicholas Holt is doing is very daring, right? Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, the director makes a lot of visual jokes out of both uh, Olivia Colman and Nicholas Holt that he doesn't of the two women. How so? Well, for example, just, you know, the look yeah. of Nicholas Holt, right? The, painted the face, wig and the painted hair. lips, and mm. right? Uh, and also the contrast sometimes when, you know, uh, he's saying something and then you see him with those little lips. Um, and But also the harshness. He's meant to be a cruel figure, right? All the throwing, what was it, oranges or tomatoes at the naked man. Yeah, both, right? I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, of course, you know, the joke of... Olivia Colman with her badger look. And it really is a badger look. And it's filmed yeah. to be funny. Yeah. Right? You know? <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very extreme. Right? Um, you don't get... Or I don't remember any of that type no, of visual the, joke with... The looks of Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone are not made fun of. Um, yeah. I know. No, I mean, there is a thing about how sort of the guys... It's it's the men in this in this world who wear makeup. Yes. More than the women. That's right. Um, um, yeah, she, has, she, she has a joke at one point about him... Smearing his mascara. Yes, that's right. She's she's she. It's Rachel Weisz, um, uh, sort of teasing him about the fact that he can't get his way over the land tax, and he, she says, "Don't smear your mascara by crying." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the other thing is though, that the, the male actors in the film are kind of uh, how to put it, kind of know their place in a way. Like that, there's no danger of their characters taking anything over, taking over any kind of real attention. It always comes back to the three central female characters and the way that they're going to respond to everything. Well, for sure. I mean, you know... It, the, the, um, they're more peripheral. But. Yeah. Uh, it's not to say they're not important, but, you know... No, I mean, no. They're, I mean, not, the they're not scene stealers either. No, except, you know... So, there's no question that the film is a triangle, right? And the triangle are all the women. Um, and the triangle is one for power, really. Uh, um, however, you know, within that, I think... You know, so we were talking about, in a way, the quality of performance rather than, you know, its importance to the narrative mm. uh, um, or its length. And I think Nicholas Holt gives an extraordinarily daring performance. I mean, you know, he's a young Hollywood star and he's basically kind of doing nasty restoration comedy, you know, in this <laughs> film. It's really quite amazing, I think. I'd maybe, I'd maybe have to watch it again to really see what you mean about that. I didn't, I didn't think he was bad or anything. I just, but he didn't strike me as extraordinary or taking kind of vast risks oh. i mean i thought the i thought that um, really the risk i thought in terms of performance would have been was olivia coleman to me i mean she lets herself look so uh, sort of uh, unpleasant to look at by the end when she's deteriorating okay and, and, and not to take anything away from that because right. she is completely great yeah but you expect a middle-aged character actress to be as free about her looks as Olivia Coleman is. You don't expect a young Hollywood leading man, <laughs> you know, to be as free with his looks as, as yeah. he's allowed to be in this film, right? And no, to be no, made such fun of. And to be feminized in those ways. I think it's a very okay. daring performance. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway. I, but, I, and I won't even say agree to disagree because I don't disagree. I just would need to say it again. Right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that said, what I want to underline is, well, first I highly recommend it, but I, I actually want to underline that it's a really funny film. Right, and that if you don't go expecting to see a traditional 
uh, um, you know, uh, 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 historical drama. drama or period drama, uh, you will enjoy it very much. It's really kind of original. It's really, really funny. Yeah, you should kind of, you should neither expect to see a traditional period drama, nor should you expect to see a traditional Yorgos Lanthimos film, because as we say, it doesn't operate in, in quite that same register as his previous couple. Yes, I it's, think it, it's much lighter, much more active, and much more accessible, and I think yes. it's to its benefit. I think it brings out the best of both genres, unless you're only going forward to see the palaces. Because in this one, the palaces are all warped. <laughs> yeah. Though actually, it has some beautiful locations as well. The set design is fantastic. I don't know how much it was shot on location or, or sets, but either way, the just the visual design is extraordinary. It's yes, beautiful. but it's not focusing on visual pleasure. I mean, the visuals no. are conveying something else. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not just look at this great ceiling. Though I did feel that way sometimes. Like, look at this great ceiling and then what? <laughs> I, remember, I remember just one shot of Olivia Coleman being being stuck in her room. I think I alluded to that sort of thing earlier. She feels like she's trapped. And and the it's her it's her chamber, it's her bedroom and the room that she's in is just so grand and, and the and at that point she's very small in centre of frame and the wide angle privileges all of the walls and all the ceiling and it's just covered in gold. There isn't a single inch that isn't covered in some gold, a gold mm. leaf or something embroidered with gold. And you know the, I, it's extraordinary to look at on its own terms, but of course like kind of the, then it's communicating the way that she's just confined, confined mm. within riches. You know, okay. like she, I have all this stuff and I cannot breathe. Yes. <laughs> she seems to say. <laughs> Pretend it's chocolate. <laughs> all right. All right then. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and... We're on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube to listen to. Uh, and you, you must subscribe to the YouTube channel because if I get a thousand subscribers then I can start uh, monetizing it. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And and how many hundreds do we have left to go? I I think we have seven so far. (laughs) Uh, uh, On social media, we're on Facebook and on Twitter. We're uh, at Eavesdrop Movies. And uh, the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.